Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello, and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 95, for Monday, March 7th, 2022. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. Guess who's joining me? Oh, sorry, I was just creepily watching others on my ship from my portable tantalus field. Uh, I'm Captain Sabriel Maston. <laughs> ah, life in your ivory hyperfield. It must be so nice up there. <laughs> oh my god, this episode. Oh, I can't wait to talk about this. Well, let's do that then. We are here to talk about Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 11, Rosetta, which aired the same day as Picard Season 2, Episode 1, The Stargazer, which we just reviewed on yesterday's podcast. So if you want to listen to our Picard discussion, go back one episode in our podcast archives. (laughs) But we are going to continue concurrently reviewing both series as they air. Uh, Two things about that. like We recorded on Thursday afternoon as the show aired and uh, because just schedules, you weren't able to edit it until like yesterday or this morning or yesterday. And I'm like, a lot of the things that we talked about, others are like, wow, look at this thing I discovered. I'm like, <laughs> of course, the time we discussed it, like right away, we aren't able to get it out there. So are you saying that up. people observed things that we overlooked? Yeah. No, no, no. Observed uh, things that we pointed out. Uh, and I was like, yeah. ah, of course. <laughs> I, I would have loved to have been on the cutting edge of that, but I basically, we basically went from recording that show to me cooking dinner for some friends who were hosting me for the week to watching Discovery. And then Friday, I had to work and then go out for lunch with a coworker and then visit a d- friend in the town for dinner. And then Saturday, I drove eight hours from Omaha wow, to Chicago. Busy, busy, busy. Yeah, I, I myself was on pins and needles. I was like, oh, we could have been on the cutting edge of this Picard, <laughs> and we weren't. Um, and even now, this Discovery review is coming out a little bit late. But and I think our listeners are patient. Tying it back to Discovery, I made the mistake of watching Picard and then Discovery. I wish I w- uh, immediately, I wish I would have waited. Because they're so tonally different? That was almost literally the words I was going to use. They were so <laughs> tonally different. I wish I would have given it a few hours to digest. But you know what? I watched it again this morning, four days later, whatever, days later. Uh, I don't know. My opinion didn't really change either. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you nonetheless got to enjoy them both. And you watched both episodes twice, That as always, right? Yeah. Wow. Cool. So let's talk about Rosetta. They have now crossed the galactic barrier. They are outside the Milky Way. And just like I predicted last week, not that it was you know a very risky bet, this episode is focused entirely on the planet that is two light years from the hyperfield, which they expected would be species 10C's homeworld. And that does seem to be the case. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you, um, before we really dive in, do you have like a one or two word feeling without any caveats or anything? Just like, what is the mood you kind of walked away with? Love. It's love. Wow, I, I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> boredom. I wonder which a complex hydrocarbon boredom is. <laughs> All right, let's dive in. Yeah, they went to that gas. I was confused when they said this is a pl- gas giant planet with a surface. I'm like, what? And then I Googled it. And apparently they have found some since in the last couple of 20 years or so. Or ones they suspect. 
Um, Because gas giants aren't really known for having surface. I thought that the planet had become more substantial after being struck by meteors, but that wouldn't make sense because people or animals or some sort of alien species were living there with buildings, so there had to have already been a surface. Yeah, so so in real life, yeah, some scientists have found planets they think are gas giants actually have surfaces. Like, okay, cool. Now we can put that into Star Trek. And does that mean that then I was like, well, that means that maybe whatever Tennessee here are like beings that are light and float around? Well, you know, the size of the bones that they found down the planet made me wonder what other big species we've seen that these could be. The only thing that came to mind were whales from Star Trek Four, but the probe that came to Earth communicated through whale song, not pheromones. So that doesn't make sense. So I don't think it's that. I would say not 100% out, but feels implausible. Yeah, I think we have floated that idea in previous episodes of this podcast without evidence. And I would say the evidence now points to it not being that, but you're right. I would not say it's conclusive. Um, yeah, it's one of those things like, is this something we've seen before? And and I've seen talk of like discovery people trying to make something that we've never seen before, but it doesn't mean it's not an alien we haven't seen before. Well, I saw a tweet, I think from somebody on the production crew who said, you would not believe the secrets that we have been able to keep up until now. <laughs> and so I don't know what sort of big reveals we should expect in the final two episodes. Yeah, uh, we don't have much to go here. And this um, this episode, uh, I could have done without. <laughs> there were parts I liked, but man, overall, I was I could not stay focused on this one. You don't think that it contributed to moving the narrative forward? Uh, no, I saw there were parts I liked, but overall, I was bored out of my mind. Uh, and well, why is that? It just nothing interesting happened here. Uh, we got creepy, creepy, super creepy book. Who's uh, got his little spy feel? Okay, sure, he's a, a agent or whatever, former guy who ran things. What are they called again? Courier. Courier, yeah. And so cool. He's got to sneak around, but he has this thing. So this whole contrived thing of having to um, hide the shuttle on Disco just felt weird to me. Um, sneaking around Discovery without being detected with their you know, object of the week. Um, oh, this will dull from the sensors. We got to dull this. Um, we have a sentient ship, which all the, you know what? We haven't heard from Zora much for weeks, really. Mm-hmm. She was a big part of an episode or two. And all of a sudden, like, yeah. Um, gosh, I was just so not into this one book sneaking out of the dark on, uh, on president and uh, and sending a terrible text message. Like it's Tarina come to this deck that's no one's on come alone i mean like in all caps <laughs> uh god the book and tarkasine here just i hated him when you said book was creepy are you referring to him solely coming out of the dark or also the fact that he was spying on his girlfriend both <laughs> both yeah yeah, he, I feel like, has definitely crossed the Rubicon. I feel like he is doing more and more questionable things. And I was especially disappointed in the agreement he and Nadoya came to because she, even though she is frustrated with the current course of action, she said, whatever you, Book, and Tarka do has to be a backup to the diplomatic mission. And yeah. 
book said agreed. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. Let's back up, guys. Book, you agreed to a diplomatic initiative previously, and Ruan Tarka ignored that. What makes you think he won't do it again? And Nadoya, you saw that happen. <laughs> right. So why are you asking them to do it again? Uh, yeah, that's just some of the stuff just didn't make sense or feel right for what these characters would do or or oh, just bleh. I mean, I know Nadoya represents Earth, and when we first saw Earth in season three, they were not part of the Federation. So this is a new relationship. It might still be tenuous, and she might be bristling with the constraints of it. I get that. But this is such a precarious situation that they really need to be presenting the unified front and listening to these people who have done so much damage. They are the ones who put the DMA in Earth's path. Why would you ever trust them again? Yeah. Also, I they keep saying debris from the DMA is heading towards Earth and Navarre. But mm-hmm. they don't say like the DMA is. So that means like gravity and all that stuff is just launching crap into space. How it, uh, can they stop it at this point? Even if they stop the DMA? <laughs> like I don't know. Well, I I have I have two questions about that. One is I think similar to when we saw gravity waves attack that space station that Tilly was helping people evacuate from. I think that's the kind of debris they're talking about. The DMA itself didn't hit the space station, but you saw nonetheless how much damage it did. Yeah, and then so how they, the debris is still going to come either way, right? You mean even if they destroy the DMA? Yeah, because gravity and 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 uh, physics doesn't just stop. Oh. Oh, I see what you mean. You know, if you throw a baseball and then you kill the pitcher, <laughs> the baseball still goes. And a curious but apt uh, analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not condoning murder of athletes. I'm just, first thing that came to mind. I mean, uh, science, time, whatever. They can explain it away. They'll figure out a way to, to reverse the polarized uh, Hull emissions and whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, it just like, I don't know if you thought about this before you said it. <laughs> Maybe I guess they meant the DMA is days away from creating debris that would hit Earth. Yeah, I mean, um, it's like borderline picking nits that I don't usually like to do, but it felt weird. And debris is a funny word for a gravity wave. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Um, also, they know they now know that a catalytic converter or whatever can destroy the DMA. <laughs> would they try that again? I mean, like, it did present a temporary re- reprieve from the original DMA. Like, maybe they would think that, oh, let's just let's just throw one at this DMA and see if maybe they don't put a newer, bigger one back in the same spot again. Yeah. Maybe that was just a fluke. And Tarka's whole plan here of like, we're going to just hide in the back of Discovery and go in there and just destroy the thing. Easy peasy, right? No, right. Oh. Uh, I don't know. Oh, it's so easy. It's I know they have no plan. He and Ruan have no plan. They don't know what the power source is. They don't know where it is. They don't know what's between them and it. But yeah, once they sneak through the hyperfield, it's going to be that easy. You know, it's funny. I will give my play, my D and D players crap for not or for overthinking a plan. But and half the time, I encourage them to come up with a half baked plan like Ruan's here. Just to get the ball rolling, instead of sitting here talking about it too much, uh, <laughs> it's kind of just different. It just amused me the different context there. I wish they would just go and do it and figured it out. 
Uh, and here I'm yeah. like, they're overanalyzing or they're underanalyzing it. I'm, I'm yelling at Ruan about. Yeah, I mean, they would need to have another isolytic weapon to destroy. Well, I guess they don't want to destroy the power source. They want to capture it. Yeah. And that's even more precarious. I mean, destruction is easy. You just drop a bomb, but to actually go in and grab it and retain it for yourself, I've, what's their plan? Yeah. I don't know. Then just go in there and do it. Duh, just do the thing. Oh, right. Yeah, easy. You know, you know that's like I'm, I'm, I'm staying with a mutual friend of ours right now, and one year he was on a, uh, a volunteer organization that was trying to raise funds, and they were trying to sell raffle tickets. And he asked the person who was running the fundraiser, well, what strategies do you recommend for selling these raffle tickets? And he, and the guy said, just do it. <laughs> and I, like, that's not helpful. Like, okay, if you want to quote Shia LaBeouf, that's fine, but it doesn't help you actually get it done. Like <laughs> what are the strategies? Do you pick up the phone? Do you go door to door? Do you send letters? What phrasing do you use? Do you offer incentives? And similarly, like, how are we going to how are we going to capture the power source? We're just going to do it. Like, oh, <laughs> okay. Ruan Tarka, one of the brightest minds in the Federation of the 32nd century, is just going to do it. Great. Yep. Good job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- however, the part about them attaching to the hull, that is not uh unusual. I mean, we've seen that in Star Wars, Star Trek. Everybody's done that a couple yeah, times. Yeah, even Enterprise. Like, like it's cloak and you s- sit on their ship or hide behind their ship. It's this is old. Hide behind the trash suit. Yeah. So were you frustrated? But no. I mean, you said you didn't like it. Is it because it's unoriginal? No. Oh, no, not not at all. I make it cool, but it just didn't feel cool at all. Like, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you could have just cloaked as well. <laughs> like, I mean, I I guess they were concerned about the hyperfield closing before they could follow in. Yeah. With my disappointment was that, as you alluded to earlier, Zora couldn't detect them, and they said that eventually Zora would figure it out. But also, it assumes that life signs are the only means to tell that somebody's there, and that Zora doesn't also have security cameras. Yeah, that adds into like when Zora noticed President Nadoye going to the deck that's vacant. Like, why would Nadoye be doing that? That's a good point. She has life signs and they're not masked. Yeah. So, so who was she talking to? Yeah. yeah. It's just weird. Maybe that'll come up next week. This feels like a half episode. I I agree that Zora is probably going to play some sort of a role. I don't think we've seen the last of her, but I feel like they keep building her up like this sphere data, the dots, everything. And then they don't do anything with it. And I'm I'm waiting for some sort of a payoff. And I don't know that it's going to come this season, but I sure hope there is one eventually. Uh, yeah, they just kind of started that whole thing and then dropped it. Yeah. Like, oh, we have a sentient AI that is prohibited from being integrated with Starfleet computers. We're going to make an exception for this one so that she can make steamed bananas. <laughs> uh, think impossible. Another reference to Lower Decks. Wait, what, what was the reference? The steamed bananas, possibly. Uh, in like the season or the series premiere, uh, there was a thing where the computer was like banana hot <laughs> and kept making banana oh. hot. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, I don't remember that. I just pulled up the memory alpha page for steamed bananas, and it only mentions. Well, I guess in Lower Decks it wasn't steamed; it was just mm-hmm. hot. So, what if I pull up the page for bananas? Because you know, Memory Alpha is going to have a page for bananas. Uh, here we go. Bananas were a fruit from Earth with a sweet taste. Wait, why is it? <laughs> I mean, in reality, we have one variety left. I guess they're just assuming that they're gone now. <laughs> So that's weird. The oh, here we go. I was searching for Edible. the worst lower decks. I should have been searching for LD. Uh, in 2380, Ensign Brad Boimler was repairing a malfunctioning replicator aboard the USS Cerritos that was stuck dispensing hot bananas when Ensign Devana Tendi reported to him as her orientation liaison. And this was the episode Second Contact, which, to your point, was season one, episode one. So yeah, this is. I don't know if it's a reference per se, but it's definitely a recurring gag. Yeah. And you know, I myself have been saying the animated series keep referencing the live action ones. We're not seeing the inverse occur. Finally, hot bananas are canon. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess it's related to production schedules, probably. When can we squeeze these references in? And also the fact that the animated series are very different from the live action shows. Uh, They are. They are. Like borderline canon. Is it real? Is it not? Uh, But anyway. That is actually a very apt description. Borderline canon. I like that. (laughs) Because some of the stuff that goes on in Lower Decks, like how do you justify that? Like even Riker, he is so different between the live action series and the animated series. And he is thematically appropriate in each one but how do you reconcile that these are the same person <laughs> oh yeah like, like that uh yeah yeah. Just go but back to, <laughs> yeah but back to discovery so they were on the planet and they experienced a variety of emotions uh apparently the species c10 oh. at least a thousand years ago was able to leave behind memories as hydrocarbons so not only do they convey emotions, but actually they were all experiencing the same hallucinations about the destruction of their world. Yeah, it's a neat idea. I mean, a lot of like I said at the start, like, like even if I didn't like the episode, there's a lot of neat ideas or neat things here, and 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 this is I like that idea, the concept mm-hmm. of um, showing emotions that way. Um, right away, it reminded me of this rarely used or seen, it might even only be in the books. Um, I don't know, it's in one adventure, but anyway, um, this ancestry in D&D called the Sariel, they don't have a language, but they speak or communicate with scent and pheromones. Yes, they first appeared in the novel Azure Bonds, Curse of the Azure Bonds. Uh, so the, the main character was Alias, and she went around with this Sariel companion, I believe, named Dragonbait. Dragonbait, yes, because Dragonbait appears with Ardis Simber as, on his search for the Ring of Winter in some of the adventures. See, yes. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, no, nah, I won't go into that tangent. But uh, but this is familiar to me, and it's like, oh, this is a neat concept. I don't think we've really seen in Star Trek. We've seen things have pheromones and sure, like Orions. Yeah, but to actually communicate this way solely, um, I guess we don't know that yet. But you get the idea in this way. Yeah, it's surprising that it would take them over eight hundred episodes to create an alien species that communicates through smell. Yeah. I mean, we get ones with the, um, we get speak through um, metaphors, we get speaking through interpretive dance. Um, 
but to have pheromones. So, wow, all this time, and it's barely been touched on. Interpretive dance, was that Enterprise? Yeah, with the Archer had to saw some logs to apologize yes. for uh, Porthos. Porthos pee on a tree. <laughs> yes, that was great. I, You know what? After we're done recording this, I'm going to go look up that scene because I've only ever watched DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise once each when they aired. I've never gone back and rewatched any of them, but some of those episodes left indelible memories and impressions. <laughs> and the one of Archer with his shirt off and a chainsaw apologizing for his dog's urination. That is something you don't forget. Ah, <laughs> oh, Star Trek at its best. Yes. Hmm. Um, there were dead floating things on the planet that looked like they had been alive at some point. Are you referring to something other than the, the dust? Yeah, inside the chamber, a little bit out, but mostly inside the chamber. There was like, they, uh, very loosely, it looks like squid just floating, mm-hmm. like bloopers without the eyes. Uh, oh, bloopers from Mario Brothers. Uh-huh. Huh. Uh, but they were floating. No one questioned them. Uh, and you'd see them just like bobbing up and down. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Bloopers, they exist in the Mushroom Kingdom. And Discovery moves through the mycelial network. Hold on, I'll get the red strings. Hold on. <laughs> it's a conspiracy, I tell you. I like, like, oh, Detmer's first away mission? Okay, first of all, she is the crap, as they said. I <laughs> totally agree. And this was her first away mission? Uh, that's what she tweeted. A baby's first away mission. Uh, and a picture of herself. Wow. I mean, I remember the actor who plays Reese tweeted a photo of Detmer in her suit and he said wow looking good Detmer and I didn't realize that one of the reasons for that was not only does she look amazing but also that we'd never seen her like that before yeah so wait why oh because she had to pilot the very boringly named shuttlecraft it's Mm -hmm. not like she was going as head of security or anything right do they have a head of security they keep losing their heads of security uh yeah it's like the defense against the dark arts teacher Right. <laughs> you get a new one every season. <laughs> okay, so that's why Detmer was there. Culber, Saru speaks a hundred languages, and Burnham is a xenoanthropologist. <laughs> and they all went, you know, uh, they they all walk into a bar. <laughs> right. Uh, you bring up a good point. I brought up my friend Char ages ago about Voyager and security. Because Tuvok, he's head of security, but goodness, does he. So things always go wrong no matter what. And then I'm like, and then I was like, well, no, sure, it makes sense. This is a science ship, a bunch of nerds. They're not going to put much for security on here. Uh, Voyager was never meant to go out, the, out there. They don't need <laughs> air security. They're just a bunch of nerds. What are they going to do? Right. Like quit partying or quit studying until 2 a.m.? I mean, <laughs> I mean, they were sent to capture a Maquis ship. You would think that they'd have some security. Yeah, but you get the idea. It's like, <laughs> and then how do the how do these then I was thinking like the grander scheme of things like why did all these why is security such a big thing on a lot of these ships but they always seem to have security officers no matter what even though they would be bored out of their minds if it weren't for a ship that was on TV every week right well <laughs> it's kind of like the John Scalzi book Red Shirts have you read that no but we talked about it here before okay well I'm just going to keep asking you if you've read it until you read it <laughs> But anyway, it's a tangent that's kind of quasi-related, but uh, like, like of Discovery not having a security officer. 
Now, they were, as we mentioned, experiencing all the same hallucinations once they were down on the alien planet. Yeah, everyone tripping together. <laughs> did you figure out before they did what the cause was? Yeah, they kept they kept zooming in on the blue stuff, and every it kept happening right after they touched the blue stuff, the cam- where the camera was showing. Mm. Like, Saru steps on blue stuff. Oh, he's, he's having a, a, a thing. And then Michael goes and sees him on a wall and touches it. And then she starts going. And... See, I missed those connections. I didn't realize that Burnham was touching something. Uh, and with Saru, my expectation was that he was reverting to an earlier Kelpian form who's scared of everything. And even he himself said that he had not experienced fear like that or the coming of death in a long time. And that maybe the show was intentionally leading me to believe it was unique to him. But then when Culber experienced it, I was like, wait, is it contagious? Did he get it from touching Saru? And even the rest of them said to Detmer, stay far away from us. We don't want you catching whatever we have. So even they thought there was the possibility that it was contagious. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't blame you for missing the, the I mean, the Culber one was subtle. You, you could think why he's touching them. But um, the Michael one, those inside scenes were so dark. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're trying to convey your inside, of course, but... Uh, the lighting on a lot of TV is so dark, and so it was harder to see some things. Yeah, if you have one of those TVs, what's it called, like ultra high def UHD, that I made—I may be getting the acronym wrong, but it has like really rich, dark, vibrant blacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, I, I think what it happens is traditional TVs, when a pixel is supposed to be black, it lights up with the black color, and with newer TVs that pixel simply doesn't light up at all. So it actually is black. And that results in a better picture. Interesting. I knew there was a tech, but I didn't know how it worked. That's neat. But Well, yeah, but- I, I, again, don't quote me on that. Right, right. But it's a general, general uh, idea. Yeah. The last time I bought a television was 2011. And the last time I owned a television was 2019. Mm-hmm. So what do I know? Yeah. But uh, I mean, that's a problem with TV too. Audio and video. Like you can get some really beautiful video, but audio is also kind of terrible. Or how many times, even in this watching Star Trek, I have to crank it up if I listen to them talk and turn it down if there's any action on the screen. You know, I vastly prefer watching shows without subtitles. I find them very distracting. However, what I find more distracting than subtitles is having to rewind to figure out what they said. Yeah. And so part of this I have learned is environmental it's not the production it's where i'm watching it because i travel from airbnb to airbnb so my environment changes every six weeks and sometimes i need subtitles on and sometimes i don't and i think it's because it's the quality of the tv and the sound system and sometimes however it does seem to be like the show i remember uh i was in one apartment for two years i was actually living there not as a nomad And I was watching the TV show Heroes, and I had to have subtitles on for that show. I was watching a lot of other shows at that time, didn't have subtitles on for any of them. It was just Heroes. So I don't know. Maybe Discovery is one of those shows, or maybe it's just my TV or your TV. I don't know. Uh, There's also a greater – I won't get into much further than that, but there's been – I've seen a lot of discussions of audio is a lot of the shows the last thing to consider, and there's not much money for it. And so there's like, oh, whatever we get, you get, <laughs> uh, you so get, yeah. you get what you get and you don't get upset. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so, so the point being what started all this is you, it'd be, 
it would you could not be blamed for missing something that happened in that cavern because it was so damn dark. <laughs> yeah, I think we're talking about similar things. How there is a lack of visual acuity and also audio fidelity, and so sometimes subtle things get missed. And I appreciate that's not my fault because nothing ever is. Yeah, I mean, I am an American after all. <laughs> uh, programmable matter. Did that come up again? Yep. Well, we can't. Why didn't our thing? Why didn't our suits get it? Oh, hold on. I can That's just right. program the programmable matter so it gets so it blocks it again. See, Michael emphasized more than once that their environmental suits would filter out anything yes. like that. Well, that's why I thought it it can't be the dust, and then it ended up being the dust. Uh huh. Have- I really. Th- I mean, they even said like their tricorders were picking up no psionic energy. I'm pretty sure they said that. I don't remember. That's a really cool thing for a tricorder to be able to pick up. <laughs> oh, I do remember that now. Yes. So, like, just in case Telosians were on planet, they could tell just by scanning for psionic energy. Yeah. Amazing. Um. Yeah. Yep. Planet. <laughs> planet. I mean, cool. Uh, the nursery thing. And everyone ha- tripping uh, together and having that emotional moment. That was a neat thing. Uh, I like the idea of everyone just, like, Allowing themselves a moment to find contentedness. Yeah. To feel content and safe. When Culber felt it and he said, oh, it feels like my parents or something. And then Detmer gasped. And I was like, oh, no. Detmer has never felt that. (laughs) And then a moment later, that's exactly what she alluded to. And I was like, oh, that made me feel even worse for her. However, on the shuttlecraft back to Discovery, she starts to apologize. Yep. And Burnham says, don't you dare finish that sentence or I'll demote you. And then I got to disagree with what Burnham said next, which was, it's okay to lose control for five minutes. No, it is not when there is an alien artifact about to destroy your home world. <laughs> like five minutes counts. Yes, no, I don't think she meant in the grander scheme of things, but... I mean, if you want to focus on that moment, like you got work to do and so much time to do it, I see what you mean. Yes. I mean, just like how the Admiral admonished them, don't screw it up. Make this trip count. They spent a lot of time. They kind of jumped over it. But right away, they opened with justifying why Captain and First Officer are going. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, there was a lot of talking, and Burnham never once said, every minute we spend talking about our crew configuration is another minute that the DMA gets closer <laughs> to destroying Earth, Navarre, and Titan. Yeah, a lot of time is spent here. I don't know. It'll probably be justified. It will be. They'll, they'll figure a way to make it work, but I don't know if I believe them in the actual moment <laughs> either. Even if I know as a viewer, even if I know as a viewer it's the right thing to do, I don't know if I've, I don't know if she had a strong enough argument. If President Rillick had an argument, uh, if Michael for bringing Saru on the mission to, to go on this mission, I agree with it. I see it story wise. I just don't think they had a good enough like. I don't think Michael said the right words to be convincing. And on one hand, they came back with invaluable information, which justifies the away mission. On the other hand, one of the things I learned in a undergraduate psychology class is that you cannot evaluate a decision by its results. <laughs> yeah, you have to base the wisdom of a decision on the how the information you had available to you at the time to make that decision. So for example, let's say that I take all my retirement funds and I go to the casino and I put it on the roulette wheel and I bet it on black and I immediately have a 48% chance of winning. It doesn't matter 
what number or color comes up on the roulette wheel, I've already made a bad decision. Like I might end up doubling my money and that's great, but I am making a decision based on odds that are against me. And that therefore is a bad decision. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, just because I think it was probably the right thing to do. I don't think she justified it the right way. Yeah. If they had information available to them that justified this decision, it may not have been clearly communicated. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, she's an, a xenoanthropologist. She's used to talking to humans, <laughs> not aliens. So, or vice versa. Anyway. Um, President Rillick, uh, talking, addressing down Dr. Harai, a guy who's had like two lines. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it felt weird, uh, out of place. Dr. Harai, I previously in this very podcast referred to him as an admiral. Is he? Uh, he is. He's got two stripes. So he is an admiral. Uh, isn't that um, lieutenant? Oh, okay. Okay. Because if he was an admiral, I was wondering how he got so high up without anybody ever speaking to him about his bedside manner. I mean, is this news to him? Uh, like, does he not know that he comes across differently from his peers? Uh, you know, like, like in the short trek of um, a dude what plays Archer uh, with the triples. Oh, not Captain Archer. Yes. Um. Uh, yeah, I mean, you go so far in life without some some agent people go so far in Starfleet without having to work under someone. <sighs> hmm. Okay. Uh, I mean, I I kind of like how Doctor Harai breaks the tension of the moment, but apparently it had an effect on Nadoya, and <laughs> yeah. I didn't even notice that. Did you? Uh, the, the camera zoomed in on her for a second, but hmm. yeah. I mean, I certainly don't agree with Dr. Harai's long-term view of whether or not we worry about tomorrow, it will come nonetheless. Like, no, you still need to take action to shape tomorrow today. And so you can't just dismiss whatever is going to happen today. But at the same time, like everything he has said has been fine by me. And so if that's how President Rillick wants to spend her final moments before the DMA hits her home planet, psh- fine but uh, you know at least we got to see that crossword puzzle still exists in the future <laughs> ancient earth oh i forgot it's not the stripes on their neck that show their rank it's the little pips on their badge okay and he has two full ones lieutenant junior grade is like one black one gold okay oh man it's just it's very subtle you have, to, you have to live in this world to know to watch out if you need to salute this person <laughs> And you never know if they've just been having street corn or not. All right. <laughs> it's very confusing. Well, was that a 3D crossword puzzle? Uh, Yeah, it was. That's kind of cool. I want to play one of those. <laughs> Obligation. Uh, let's see. Oh, we didn't talk about Ron Tarka in this episode. Uh, I just touched on it. but so, Well, the only important thing he did for me in this episode was... Get caught by Jet Reno. Yep, and then take her hostage. And I would like to see it spelled out how we got from that scene to the other because I didn't see him carrying a weapon. I don't know on how he was able to capture her. I mean, other than he maybe he just like jumped at her and hit his comm badge to transport back to the ship. But I don't know. Apparently, I didn't it's s- irrelevant to how he got her. I mean, I'm sure, I I suspect we're going to see or hear something about it because the way she greeted Book, like, Mm -hmm. hey, nothing like coming home to an unexpected hostage, huh? It implies that Book is going to ask, 
what the hell is going on here? How did this happen? What were you thinking? What did you do? And one of those questions is going to get answered. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think, well, I, I am glad, however, that clearly she is going to be vital to the plot for the next episode or two. She's going to get some good screen time. We're not just going to write her off and say, oh, she's in another section. She's in engineering. She's doing this or that. Any scene that Ruan Tarka and Book are in, she is going to be in. And that's great because we love her. Uh-huh. Absolutely. She's going to have some great comments, some snarky-ass comment that uh, um, Tarka will be like, oh, wow, someone who matches my intelligence. I mean, I guess they work together already. Yeah, not too much. I would like to see more of that. And I wonder if she will be the one to convince Book that he's not doing the best thing in this situation. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. I really liked the scene with Jet and Adira. I like it when an older queer can give guidance to a younger one. So I'm all for these scenes. And then, of course, that led to Adira sitting down with Detmer. Uh-huh. Which, a, a younger queer hanging out with an older queer. <laughs> yeah. I like their little banter. I like how Detmer made fun of her. Like, oh, I did fly good. And we can mention that every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. Uh, this is two episodes in a row. Are we seeing a Lurian drinking at the bar? Yes. <laughs> Even our friend, Dr. Steve, who was on our most recent episode about podcasts. I watched this episode of Discovery with him. And he was like, hey, isn't that one of the, the Morns from Deep Space Nine? <laughs> like, it sure is. Yes. Um, we saw Grudge. We did? Yes, I missed it too. Shara told me, Grudge is there. I'm like, what? And I looked at, oh, uh, in the opening thing when Michael is giving her captain's log, Grudge is sitting on her bed. Oh. there, And I was like, Michael, book gave you gave you Grudge to protect her. And then you bring her out here anyway. Like you should have huh. left her on the starbase with Admiral Vance. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Michael, you're not a cat person. <laughs> I kind of feel like Grudge needs to come up in dialogue because she's a queen. There was well, like for example, th- that much earlier episode where Book is inside the DMA and he is still grieving from Quajon, and he almost considers not leaving the area. He like just letting his ship explode, and he has to be talked down into using that programmable matter tether to get out. Somebody should have said, "Hey, don't do it for you." Do it for Grudge. She's on that <laughs> ship too. And if you die, who will take care of her? I mean, maybe maybe it will still come up that way. Check off Grudge. Oh. <laughs> if you see a Grudge in the first act, it must be fired by the third act. <laughs> well played. I would love to see that. Um, and Grudge is an important part of the opening episode of the season with the moth mm-hmm. people. So maybe Grudge yeah. will come back into it with the 10C. Or they'll be like, that creature it just wants to pee or eat. Uh, why <laughs> did you bring it to the Tensi? I feel like we have these characters, Grudge, Zora, and Jet, who have not gotten enough screen time this season, and yet there have been hints that they are important. Yeah. And I would like to see how they manifest themselves in the final two episodes. Yeah. Also, as long as we're talking about uh, Burnham's log and you know, generally being in her personal quarters, she had that tender moment with Culber where he admitted that he's not okay. Yeah, he gave her a Mavi, which I had to look it up. It's a Puerto Rican drink. Uh, oh. I saw that people very happy to see that represented on TV. Hmm. Uh, it meant a lot to them. Uh, but yeah, the scene where he's like, yeah, I'm not okay. And she's like, of course you're not okay. None of us are. Uh, but you especially. <laughs> yeah, on one hand, you don't want to dismiss him by saying, 
yeah, you and everybody else, what makes you special? Because what he's experiencing is unique. He feels responsible for the mental health of everybody on the ship, which is an impossible task, as Paul pointed out to him. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to have somebody in that position acknowledge the weight. I mean, I've seen multiple therapists in my life, and fortunately, I have never had anything too egregious to burden them with. But I nonetheless have to wonder how do they go home and not just dwell on everything they've heard? Because somebody who, like me, who's very sensitive and internalizes a lot of things, that would be a very difficult profession for me. And I have to hope that they have, in their education and their training, have learned to put up some shields and partition themselves from everything they hear. And I don't know if Culber did that, because he started this series back in season one as a medical doctor. And maybe... He doesn't have the training to be a mental health therapist. And that would. I think maybe, but I feel like more like they're just like, oh, we should add this into the character. Um, but I do know some people who went into psychology because I used to be a psych major, minor myself who quit because they're like, I can't separate myself from this. I've tried. Mm-hmm. So you are exactly right. That does happen. And maybe like you, they recognize that before they get too far. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Nope. This episode was, this is my worst episode of the season, even if there are parts I liked. Well, let me ask you this. What could they have done differently? No idea. It wasn't, it wasn't interesting. They didn't convince me of their things. So convince me going to the planet was a good idea. Uh, book and Tarka, boring on this one. They didn't do anything to make me convince me that their thing was a good idea. I mean, they did kneel down before transporting. That was pretty cool. I like, like I said, there's parts <laughs> I like. Like, you don't see that. Um, and he's, I like that. Tarka's like, is this some kind of Quijan thing? <laughs> he's like, no, I just like my torso. And you see, and they beam, and then you see why, because they're in a Jeffrey's tube. That payoff came up, it took a bit, because when he first said it, I was like, wait, what? Does he just not trust transporters? And then they beam in. And I was like, oh, now I get it. That took me a second, of course. <laughs> but I also have to wonder, what would have happened if Tarka had not knelt down? You have to assume that the transporter has safeties built in where you would not beam into a hull and lose your torso. I, I think Book would have, said, would have just said, get down, Morpheus. He would have actually just said it, but Book actually kneeled down. Hmm. But I think probably, probably would have just said, hey, nope, we'll get you to the nearest location. <laughs> Do you remember an early episode of TNG? I, I think it was the one with the dying scientist who implanted his personality into data because he wanted to live forever. No, no, no. That was was a different one. And he, I think they did like a transport at warp. And it was like, it was just in the opening scene. It was just like, oh, we need to drop you off at this plant, but we don't have time to slow down. So we're going to transport you at warp. And when they beamed in, I think it was like Worf said, for a moment there, it felt like I was in that wall. And Jordy said, for a moment, you were. (laughs) Because the transporter like had to recalibrate because it's a risky maneuver or something. Um, I don't think we've I don't think we've seen it since. No, near warp transport. I think it was called, and it was like a season one or season two thing. Uh, to sound neat, and they never touched it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just you know, early Star Trek is just playing with things to see what they can do and get away with, and how things work, and just like. Later on, as Star Trek becomes a thing and it catches on, they're like, oh, we need to make all those earlier experiments consistent somehow. (laughs) 
Like, how come Kirk was going at warp 13, and now the most you can go is warp 9.95? Yeah. Uh, we'll come up with an explanation for that. <laughs> and so I guess they're trying... Let's see if we can do near-warp transports. And we're like, nope, let's never mention that again. <laughs> Live and learn. Anyway. Well, that's all I got this week. Yeah, I don't have much either. I was I was like, this is the most excitement I can get for this muster for this episode. <laughs> I mean, I didn't dislike it at all. I thought it was a good episode. I would have to really sit down and think about what was my least favorite episode of this season, but I can pretty conclusively say it wasn't this one. I can't tell you where in the ranking it is, mm -hmm. but for me, this was not the worst. Uh, yeah, so next week we got two left, and then just Picard, and then then we got Stranger, Strange New Worlds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's still a lot to be seen, to be done. Oh, by the way, Memory Alpha has separate entries for Banana Pancake and Banana Split. Uh, Those are separate from All banana. right, Memory Alpha writers, good job. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, it's not, they should have separate entries for steamed bananas and hot bananas, but they don't. You can fix uh, that anyway. whenever you're ready. <laughs> oh, you're right. Oh, no. More things for me to do. <laughs> so, yeah, we haven't seen Species 10C. We suspect that they are now massive. Uh, they hide in a hyperfield because their plant was destroyed a thousand years ago. I, we don't know how long lived they are. If these are direct descendants or survivors of that attack, it's possible that they don't understand what the DMA is doing because they are physically existing on such a different scale. They're clearly also more technologically advanced, which we already knew, but there are Dyson rings around the sun which for some reason doesn't give them enough energy to maintain the hyperfield such that they still need to create the DMA. So yeah, I am really curious to know how they're going to get into the hyperfield and what they're going to find on the other side and what that communication looks like because view screens and holograms are really good at conveying audio visual. How do you communicate pheromones at distance? Um, yeah, that's a good science question. We're going to science the heck out of it. Yeah. And for this point in the series it's an entirely rhetorical question i'm not asking you sabriel for an answer <laughs> but it's something that they're gonna need to contend with unless they want to beam into where these aliens are and that's assuming that the aliens exist in cities and ships which we assume they do because we saw structures on the planet but they might be so big and the fact that they were in a gas giant to your point earlier that they might just swim around Maybe they are like space whales, which we know from season one of Discovery is also a thing. But maybe they just exist in space in a hyperfield and there's nowhere for Discovery members to beam to. Yeah. Unless they want to be like Jonah and beam directly into the whale. <laughs> so, yeah, there is a lot culminating in the next two episodes, which is, of course, how serial series work. But, yeah, I am eager and curious to see what comes next. Me too. Until next time. Oh, sorry. I was saying goodbye with pheromones. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. All right, let's see. We're recording, and I already lost my app. Where's my app? Oh, my God.
Why, why are you like this? We've talked about this. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock. I don't know. 